And it was, we're going to continue enjoying God together. If you are new or newish this morning, we're glad that you're here. I'm Philip. I lead the team of wonderful leaders that we have. And we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 this morning, if you have Bibles. And if you don't, that's okay, because it's on the screen. Um, it's a long old chapter. I'm just going to get straight into it. Uh, I'm going to summarize it a little bit, get straight into it, stop, make a few comments, and by By those comments, I'll also kind of set the scene for the series that we're in. But I'm just going to dive straight into the passage. Um, But if it's new to you, I'll be explaining as I go along. The context of the book of Daniel is that Daniel and a whole bunch of people from Judah have been forcibly exiled in the year 604 BC, taken from their land of Judah and planted into Babylon itself, right at the heart of the empire. Uh, and that was common practice in the ancient world to take people from one place, put them into another, and particularly take hold of some of the brightest and the best and put them into the royal court and try and assimilate them into uh, kind of royal culture. And so the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is kind of the leading super superpower of the day, he has taken Daniel and his friends, put them in the royal court, and he's seeking to indoctrinate, really, these young men, so they can then go forth with all their, all their skills and gifts, uh, and kind of extend his vision across the known world, which is basically to accrue as much power uh, and wealth as possible. And in chapter two, what's happened is that Daniel and his friends have been kind of absorbed right into the heart of the royal court, the wise men, and, and so on and so forth, because of the stand they took last week that Mike mentioned. Uh, and in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar, this king, and this kind of basically the, the, the leader of the, well, not the free world, the enslaved world, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a, has a dream which really disturbs him. And so he gathers all of his wise men, he's astrologers and, and, and uh, mysterious uh, people and so forth, astrologers and, and enchanters, it says. Uh, and he says to them, I need to know the interpretation to this dream, because I'm pretty worried by it. And I also want you to tell me the dream itself, kind of a sort of test for them. And they kind of throw their arms up in horror and say, well, the interpretation, maybe we, we could tell you that, because we could look at our kind of magic books and come up with something. But the dream itself, like no one can tell you what you've dreamt unless you tell us what you've dreamt. And Nebuchadnezzar, like all good tyrants, uh, reacts like this in verse 12 of chapter 2. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed, which includes Daniel and his friends. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Just to kind of set this passage in its context and this book in this context of our series. This whole term for us has been, we have a bit of a focus on making God known. So this church family is about knowing God, being known and loved and making God known. And this term we've been focusing on what it is to make God known, which is why we had a series called Connect on Evangelism up until last week. And while we've now started this series in Daniel. So Connect was about making God known through telling people the good news of Jesus Christ, in simple terms, evangelism. Citizens this series in Daniel is about the same broad theme, how do we make God known to our friends, our culture, our society, but specifically, how do we do it with our lifestyle? And even more specifically, how do we do it with our lifestyle when we live in a context that is increasingly 
skeptical, even hostile towards the Christian faith in particular. So we're not just asking in citizens, in Daniel, like, how do we tell people the good news? That's a great question to ask. We're also now asking, well, how do we live and talk about the good news in a culture and a society where the good news is not always assumed to be good news, where some of the things that Christians have to say or there is increasing hostility towards. Um, Rachel, who so courageously sang beautifully over us before, thank you, Rachel, took us into a great place of worship. Rachel was also mentioning to me this week there was a, a magistrate in Kent, uh, Richard Page. Uh, some of you may, may have come across his story. A few years ago, he was a, a well-regarded, 30-plus year, I think, magistrate in Kent. And in the privacy of uh, a room with other colleagues, he, in the context of a a court case as to where a child in care should be adopted, he expressed the view that, in in his view, that child would be better looked after by a mother and a father than they would by two fathers or two mothers. He expressed that view and lost his job as a result of expressing that view. And this week, he lost the latest in a series of of, uh, high court appeals uh, accordingly. My point being, there are, you will have spotted the trajectory is going a certain way. There are certain things, not least around sexual, family, ethics, and so on and so forth, around the idea of exclusive truth, where Christianity is increasingly resisted. Now, I'm not here to say, therefore, we should... Uh, well, what I am, I'm here to say, say, therefore, is that Daniel's got a lot to teach us. The book of Daniel's got a lot to teach us about what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven whilst in the, in, in the kingdom of earth. Because Daniel has been exiled, taken away from one place where God was, at least in theory, honoured and worshipped and accepted and believed in. And he's now in a place where all kinds of gods are accepted and believed in. And also, he's now trying to serve a context where there's grave injustice taking place. So Daniel's got a lot to teach us in this moment about what it is to live as a citizen of heaven whilst on earth, if that makes sense. And so we're going to keep on digging into uh, the passage in a moment. But also what Daniel's doing right here in these first few verses is modelling exactly what Mike described him doing last week. So just in the first few verses, do you notice he's doing exactly what Mike taught us so helpfully last week. He is standing out, stepping up, and going all out. Do you notice that? So Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who I associate with a very, very intimidating, well-armed man, comes to, to kill Daniel and his friends. And what does the text say that Daniel does? It says he replied with prudence and discretion. I find that interesting. Human beings have a fight or flight tendency, don't we, built into us. And yet Daniel doesn't do either. He doesn't lash back and fight back and say, this is outrageous, I can't believe the injustice of this king. And neither does he leg it. (laughs) He finds a third way. He replies with discretion and prudence. He's standing out to something a bit different straight away. Then he certainly steps out because I think he challenges Arioch and the king a little bit. He says uh, in verse 15, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Other translations say urgent is better translated as harsh. Why is he doing this harsh thing? So he, he steps out discretion and prudence. He then, sorry, he stands out, discretion and prudence. He then steps out and says, hang on a minute, I'm not, this is not right. And then he goes all out, to quote Mike from last week. Because he then says, right, Arioch, you need to make me an appointment. You've got access to the Nebuchadnezzar's diary. Make me an appointment to see him tomorrow, and I will tell him what his dream is and what it means. Now that is going all out, because he doesn't know at this point what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was or what it means. And if he's going to go into the king's court 
and claim to have the answer to the king's question and not, then that is a death sentence, certainly. So I think I find it fascinating that whereas last week we saw Daniel doing those things around the kind of maybe less dramatic issues of what he should and shouldn't eat, this week he's taking it up a notch and he's going all out and putting his life on the line to both challenge and bless this um, very, very, to put it mildly, difficult boss. So my question is, where does he get this kind of courage from? How is he able to act with such courage and faith and integrity? Why doesn't he lash out in insecurity and panic? Why doesn't he just hide away and hope it all goes away? Where does he get the courage and the faith and the integrity from to live out his faith in such a, in such a fashion? Well, I think verse 17 is, is the first clue as to how he does it. So verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mikael, to Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God, of, from the God of heaven, concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. I like to think he sang that same song, Blessed be your name. And he goes on to pray uh, a prayer of thanks and blessing to God. I just want to stop there. What are we learning? I think the first way that we can learn how to live like Daniel, and I'm assuming none of us are facing death threats at the moment, although many Christians around the world are, different message, but probably all facing moments where we've got a choice whether we stand out, step up, and go all out for the kingdom of heaven. First thing we learn from Daniel as to how to do it is this, to invest in friendship and prayer. Real simple stuff, to invest in friendship and prayer. It's just the verses up today, I haven't got the, the points, I'm afraid. He invests in friendship and prayer. Do you notice that? He's gone all out, he's made this remarkable stand. He's gonna go into the court of the most powerful man in the world and under pain of death, give him the answer. He hasn't got that answer yet. So what does he do? He goes to his friends. Citizens of heaven who want to seek the kingdom of heaven to come on earth, do it alongside other citizens of heaven. Real simple stuff, but part of the, the nature of being church, of being image bearers of God, is we do things in community, in friendship. What Daniel's modeling for us here, you could argue, is an early foretaste of the church. Because we fast forward several hundred years, the New Testament has no concept of a solo believer in God. Apostle Paul would have had no concept of our more individualistic culture. It would be possible to kind of be a Christian, just you and God, rock up the church sometimes. Otherwise, it's kind of you and him doing your thing. Paul would have been baffled by that. That's why the New Testament uses the language to describe the church, uses the language of family, of brothers and sisters, of body parts that are physically and spiritually joined to one another. Uses the language of soldiers in armies, sheep in flock. It's all the language of the plural, isn't it? And so my simple question is this morning, regardless of what you may or may not be facing or may or may not be considering stepping out into, who are your Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegos? Who are the people uh, in the family and the household of God that you are investing in friendship and prayer with? I remember uh, a few years ago, I was a teacher, as many of you know, up the road in, in Weybridge, and uh, I was lucky to have a great friend called Matt in my department who was a Christian. Uh, and he and I, uh, after a, sort of a couple of years, began just to pray together a little bit. 
And one of the things that motivated us to pray together was another guy in our department whose name was Chris. Uh, and Chris, was a, he'd just come into our department, a new, 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 new qualified teacher. And he's an interesting guy because he was incredibly gifted, talented. He's like a good-looking guy. He was like a national athletics champion and also teaching history, whereas me and Matt were sort of desperately wanted to be the sporting champions and ended up teaching history. <laughs> um, and he was, very, he was very driven, successful, bright, but actually he was really struggling as a teacher because... Frankly, he was very driven. So he was trying to teach the perfect lesson. He was trying to do everything absolutely brilliantly. He was exhausting himself and everybody else in the process. Not able to kind of liaise with the ups and downs of kids and parents and staff and all that kind of stuff. And so Matt and I just began to pray for him. Uh, not loads, not super regularly, but we did just begin to sort of pray, pray for him. Partly out of pure self-interest because he was mucking up our department a bit. But hopefully also out of... Um, <laughs> out of uh, the, right, the right motivations. And over the next three or four years, a couple of co- interesting things happened. One is that Chris became a Christian. He started going to the church down the road, uh, and he, he became a Christian. He'd always had some kind of notion or stuff, but he became a Christian. And secondly, is he just began to relax, just began to kind of have an ease about him and didn't mind so much if things weren't going perfectly and so on and so forth. It was really encouraging to see, just bit by bit, this kind of answer to prayer. Anyway, I saw my friend Matt last year. I left this school six years ago. And I saw Matt last week. I said, oh, how's, how's Chris doing? And he's like, he's just, you wouldn't believe it. He's just a different guy. He is now apparently, Chris is now apparently gathering other people in the school to pray. And Matt was saying that uh, it was a bit of a problem with the leadership of the school and people getting really upset and frustrated with a Nebuchadnezzar type uh, leadership of the school. And Matt was getting frustrated and he couldn't believe that in his frustration he then discovered that Chris had gathered five of the Christian teachers to pray about the situation in the school. My point being, a bit of friendship and prayer goes an awful lot longer than lots of effort from us. So who are Shadrachs, Meshachs and Abednegoes? Are you in a life group? Are you attending the life group that you're in? Are you asking for prayer? In our life group this week, we had a great time in Pete Christie's life group, and we were saying, I've got this coming up. Please, can you pray for this? It doesn't have to be, I'm, I'm go- I might get killed next week. It might just be, I've got a conversation coming up. I'm meeting up with a friend next week. Or I've got stuff at work that's it's going to challenge the integrity of my faith. Can you pray? We're not built to do this thing alone. Citizens of heaven extend the kingdom of heaven by drawing alongside other citizens of heaven. Pick up the text again, verse 30. So Nebuch- uh, Daniel's got his appointment into Nebuch- Nebuch- Nebuchadnezzar's diary, and he turns up to tell him what he, God has revealed to him. Verse 30. But as for me, this is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in his court, in this pretty tense meeting, I'd imagine. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Just a brief little aside there. Notice the humility with which Daniel speaks. All he has to do is say, because Nebuchadnezzar has been saying to him before, I gather you, Daniel, have the answers to my question. All Daniel has to do is say, well, you're quite right, I do. And he knows there are gifts and wealth unimaginable coming his way. And yet he doesn't. He credits God straight away. Humility is right at the core of why Daniel is a, if you like, successful citizen of earth. He's a humble, humble guy because citizens of heaven, what they ultimately are passionate about is the glory and the fame and the honor of the king of heaven, not their own. Notice also the kind of blessing that Daniel wants to, to bring. I'm here, he says, that you may know the interpretation, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. 
Why does Daniel care about easing Nebuchadnezzar's mental struggles? This guy's going to kill him. He hasn't come so right, I'm here, Nebuchadnezzar, to tell you a few home truths. I'm here for your blessing. You are going to kill me. I'm here because I've heard from God and I represent the God who is here to bless you and give you the answers to your questions. You might be the most powerful man in the world, but like every human being going, you have questions and wrestles and struggles and God is here to answer them. I think that's a remarkable perspective that he has. Just an aside, carry on. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. Okay, those of you with good imaginations, start to use these words now to build a mental picture in your mind of what Daniel describes, because Daniel's telling the king what his dream was. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Looked like this. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Got the mental picture in your head? As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't interrupt, so we can assume that Daniel was correct. We've got this incredible statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron and clay, and then a stone comes and crushes particularly the legs and feet of iron and clay. Must have been a very dramatic dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had. Let's carry on. Now, Daniel says, we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So, first reason why Daniel can act with this kind of third way, neither fight nor flight, but integrity and faith and courage, is because he invests in friendship and prayer. Second reason he can do it, I, I would suggest to you, is because he has perspective. He has an eternal perspective. In fact, the perspective this dream gives is exactly the perspective that he lives with. Because this prophetic dream, i.e. a dream that God is giving someone to look into the future, is startling in its historical accuracy. We're in 602 BC, and there's a prediction here of what's going to happen in the remaining centuries. And it happens as God predicts. So Daniel says, right, the head of gold on this statue, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you and your Babylonian empire, and it is amazing. But, he says, it's going to pass away and be replaced by another. Fast forward through history, 539 BC, the seemingly impregnable Babylonian Empire does indeed fall away and is replaced by Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire, which is the silver chest and arms in the dream. And the Medo-Persians are incredibly powerful, 200 years. It seemed like the eternal kingdom of incredible power and wealth and dominance. They too 
331 BC, they too pass away and are overtaken by the Greek Empire, which re is represented by the bronze middle and thighs of this statue. The Greek Empire seemed like this, there was nothing ever going to beat the, the Greeks for their wisdom and insight and power and d dominion and so forth. And what happens to them? They too are swept away by another kingdom, the Romans, represented by the iron and the clay in this dream. And so get to something like the first century AD or turn of the first, second century AD and the Roman Empire is at the height of its power. They have vast swathes of territory, North Africa, Europe, the Middle East, into, into Asia. I discovered this week that the Romans, who obviously spoke Latin, had a Latin phrase, and forgive my dodgy Latin, that goes like this, imperium sine fine. The phrase means empire without end. That was a, a common phrase that was used amongst the influential Romans of the day. They could not see any way how this incredible empire of dominion and domination would ever end. But it did. By 400, 500 AD, the Roman Empire is a, a fraction of what it was and indeed eventually did fade away. Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, just as was predicted in 600 BC, they all come, they all go. They all look eternal and impregnable and impressive and powerful and mighty and they become ultimately dust, as the dream says. It doesn't mean that their legacies haven't been helpful or even impressive, but they're no longer here. See, I reckon as impressive as Daniel is, there must have been moments, surely, where he would have he thought, this Babylonian empire just is too much, it's too strong, it's too polytheistic, it's too corrupt. It's too completely consumed by power and wealth and so forth. Frankly, us lot back in Judah, we weren't up to much either. How on earth are the promises of God ever going to come true? I'm only speculating, but he must have had some of those moments. And I'm sure we as Christians do. We get into the here and the now. And yet what this passage reminds us, if you have the perspective that Daniel had, you know that you serve a God, if you're a Christian, who looks down the tunnel of time as he did through Daniel in 600 BC, and sees all things. He sees every impressive leader and culture and kingdom and trend and idea. He sees it all. He sees the good, the bad, the ugly. He doesn't just see it. He is using it and deploying it and acting. He's not passive in his sight down the tunnel of time, but he's see acting in all ways to bring all things to his good purposes. And Daniel didn't just learn that for the first time in this passage. He would have known the prophetic promises that his people lived with. And even in the 21st century, you can think, gosh, who's going to be the next prime minister of our nation? What's going to happen with, with Brexit? What's going to happen with these kind of tectonic plates in, in Europe that are shifting and a polarization of politics? And what about happening either side of the Atlantic and emergence of so-called superpowers around the world and, and, and nuclear armament and so on and so forth? What's going to happen? How are we ever going to be okay? And God says, I, I see all things. I saw Nebuchadnezzar as the supposed leader of the world. I saw the Caesars and the emperors of Rome. I've seen the, every superpower and every super leader all throughout history, and none of them are still here. And when you get that perspective, I think we can step into Daniel's shoes a little bit. Let's read on into verse 44, because the perspective continues. He carries on interpreting the dream. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. 
and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation sure. I bet you could have cut the tension with a knife in that moment. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. It's like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you missed, you missed it. And commanded that an offering and license be offered up to him. Incense, sorry, incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel, not God, high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon but Daniel remained at the king's court. So Daniel doesn't just have perspective on the earthly kings and kingdoms that will pass away. He has perspective on the eternal king and the eternal kingdom that is coming. Must have been a thrilling uh, vision to interpret. And if you fast forward from where Daniel was in 600 BC, fast forward to the first century AD, Roman Empire is in full swing. Those arms, sorry, those feet and legs of iron and clay seem impregnable. An angel appears to a teenage Jewish girl that nobody knows or particularly cares about. And the angel says to her in Luke chapter 1, probably heard at every carol service you've been to, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be great. And I love what the angel says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 33. He says, you're going to have a baby, Mary. This is going to be a great baby. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. <laughs> Which I always think, oh, that's a nice little nativity verse. Carol service, woo. That's, that's nice. Is that the prophetic promises of God being spoken in a moment not over a great king another Nebuchadnezzar over somebody who nobody would have any thought would ever be impressive or important or influential your baby is going to be the one that fulfills the promise that I made 600 years ago of his kingdom there will be no end and that baby grows up to be a carpenter and then at age 30 in a little pocket of the Middle East in Judah that carpenter who's also been learning whilst he's been going along starts speaking and people start listening to this carpenter, this Jewish rabbi. And he starts saying over and over again things like, the kingdom is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is unlike any kingdom you've ever known. It's so unlike the Greeks and the Medo-Persians and the Romans and the Babylonians. He starts, saying thing, he starts saying things like, if you want to be great in this kingdom, you're going to be least. If you want to lead in this kingdom, you need to serve. If you want to be rich in this kingdom, you give it all away. If you want to find life in this kingdom, you lay it down. If you want to resist your enemies in this kingdom, you love them and you pray for them. I just love this, this dream of Nebuchadnezzar. It's pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to the eternal king, the stone that would come and that would bring an end to all earthly kingdoms and would establish an eternal kingdom. 
would leave every other kingdom crumbling away and indeed leave every person who resists this kingdom coming away. You see, Jesus said something sobering in Luke chapter 20 and verse 18. He often said sobering things. It's just often that we miss them out. He said, what then is this that is written? He's speaking about himself. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, referring to himself. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Ring any bells? Says Jesus again saying to probably this Jewish audience, some of whom are very impressive learned people, you know your scripture? You know your promises from Daniel? You know about the stone that's going to come to bring all things to an end and establish an eternal kingdom? That stone is me. I'm the, I'm the cornerstone, the one upon whom the new kingdom will be bought and the one upon people will be crushed. What does he mean by that? Surely Jesus came to restore. Well, he did. But the promise of Jesus was also that he's the kind of stone that ultimately, if you reject him and resist him and, and push against him, he doesn't break, you do. And that's the story of humanity, I suppose, in some ways, is that God put in place a, a, a way of living and a, 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 a way of worshipping. He put in place good boundaries for the flourishing of humanity. And the reality is that humanity, for the last however many years, has been breaking itself against the goodness of God. Like, you can go to the top of a building and say, I don't believe in gravity. Jump off, you find out gravity is true and you've broken yourself. I think what Jesus is getting at, what the Bible is so often getting at, and what the Bible shows us in gory, gruesome detail, is that when humanity pushes back against God and says, no, you're not God, I won't give my worship to you, I worship created things and not the creator, we, we break ourselves in the process. Sobering to hear Jesus speak like this. There will be a day when he, he returns, and there'll be those that are united to him in the eternal kingdom forever, and those that are in essence, in effect, are reduced to dust. See, Daniel is pointing us to this eternal kingdom and this eternal king. Jesus is, is like Daniel in many ways. I'm sure you spotted it. Like Daniel, Jesus doesn't lash out in rage at ungodliness and injustice doesn't write on placards and start picketing people, telling them how evil they are. And neither does he hide and bunker down. Like Daniel, Jesus gathers his fellow heavenly citizens and prays and ministers and lives alongside them. Like Daniel, he prays, he seeks the will of the Father. Like Daniel, Jesus, the stone, risks his life to speak words of grace and truth words that both comfort and challenge. He's the stone upon which you can build your life. He's the stone upon which life becomes dust. So as we just close, how, how do we live like Daniel? Other than gathering around community, other than taking fresh steps of faith to get alongside people or back in to the messiness of church family and investing in friendship and prayer. How do we live like Daniel? Ultimately, we, we, we look to Jesus because Daniel's a foreshadow. He's a, he's a faint picture of the kind of person that we need to counter both injustice, including our own, and to bring about the blessing and the goodness of God. See, Jesus had every reason, every reason to lash out at injustice. 
and he forgave it. Like Daniel, he had every reason to run away. And he stepped up and refused to give up. Unlike Daniel, when he needed his friends, they deserted him. Unlike Daniel, when Jesus prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father turned his face away. When Jesus spoke words of both grace and truth, they didn't promote him and honor him and bless him like Daniel. They tortured him and killed him. Daniel risked his life. Jesus gave his life. Jesus was the stone who is not just the one upon which people can break themselves. He's the stone who was prepared to be broken. He was the stone who was prepared to be crushed, to become like dust, in order that he might be restored and become a new living stone, the cornerstone of the church, upon which every believer gets to be built on as a living stone. It's beautiful what he did. You see, you might say, I'm not like Daniel. You might even say, I haven't got a Shadrach, a Meshach, and a Abednego. I don't feel like that. I'm not enjoying the fellowship and friendship that you told me is available to me in the church family. You might say, I'm not, I'm not very good at praying. I don't have an eternal perspective. I get caught up in the here and the now, and someone says something challenging to me in the workplace, and I, I forget about having an eternal perspective, and I just get a bit panicky or a bit cross. See, I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that this is good news. Daniel is not ultimately a hero that I'm sending you out to emulate. He's a signpost towards the one who's already done it, to the prince of heaven. Daniel's a citizen of heaven that signposts to the prince of heaven, who, to quote Paul in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wonder whether Ellen and the band could come and help us to to respond and to worship. I want to emphasize that point. Daniel's got so much to teach us. He inspires us. He inspires me. But the Christian faith is not, this message is not about sending you out to try and be a better version of yourself or to try and be a bit more like Daniel. Daniel is pointing us towards the one that we need and the one that's done it. The only stone that would say, I am willing to be crushed, that you might become a living stone and have an eternal hope and be founded in an eternal kingdom because every other fad and fashion and leader and power is going to fade away. Jesus has, has done it in that sense and he commissions you this week to be Daniel, not by trying really hard, but by enjoying him, by worshipping him in these moments, by standing afresh upon him as the cornerstone the stone that will never fade away, the stone upon which the church is built, the stone on which will last forever and ever and ever. You stand upon Jesus this week as the true and better Daniel. You begin to enjoy him. Let the gospel that I've stumblingly explained to you, let it melt your heart afresh, and then you start to live like Daniel. You start to resist temptation just to fight back out of insecurity and crossness, and you resist the temptation to flee and hide away. Instead, you step out with discernment and prudence and courage and integrity. And you start to see workplaces change. You start to see school staff rooms that are full of gossip change. You start to see the school gates that are maybe full of gossip and envy change. You start to see a boss that you for years struggled to, to have anything in common with or work with. You start to see a softening. 
Maybe like Daniel, you start, to, you start to speak the very answers to the mind, what people are asking. You'd be able to speak words of hope and life and freedom. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who had everything, and yet his mind was not at rest. And Daniel risked his life to speak words of life and hope and truth. And that is the calling of every single Christian. Every single citizen of heaven gets to play. Nobody stays on the back row in the kingdom of heaven. No one stays in the stands on the bench. Everyone is called to play a part. It might not be under threat and pain of death. It might just be that you choose to answer a crossword with a kind word this week. That might be it. It might be that you choose to confront somebody at work who is acting in an unjust, unfair way that is marginalizing and oppressing others. It might be that having let every joke about women in the office go for the last year, you actually bring something different and new and fresh and godly and stand up. Who knows what it might be? But every single citizen of heaven is called to play a part in extending the, citizen, the kingdom of heaven on earth. I put it to you, King's Church, that when we get the gospel, when it melts our hearts afresh, when we look to the true and better Daniel, we are able to be some of the best citizens of earth. We don't hunker down. We don't lash out. We step out in prudence and discretion and faith and kindness and boldness and courage. And maybe like Daniel, you get promoted. And, they all, and God answers your prayers. You get the stuff. You go forth. You get promoted. And it's always going amazingly well. You come here and share one of Becca's stories. Like, I did this thing. I, I stepped out. God gave me the answer to the thing that I asked. And, and it's going so well. My friends become a Christian like Chris at the, your school. And it's couldn't be going better. Or, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the next chapter, you find yourself in a fire. Or like Daniel, and a few chapters after that, you find yourself in a lion's den. The promise is not that it will be successful. The promise is that this is an upside-down kingdom. We're laying our life down. We're giving away. We're humbling ourselves. We're being least. Those are the things that in an extraordinary, unique way extend the kingdom. Giving power away. Being humbled. Being scorned. Looking foolish. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, those are the things that extend his kingdom that's the remarkable thing the wise and the impressive and the God all togethers they got a harder job coming into the kingdom of heaven Jesus said it was very very narrow for the God all togethers to come into the kingdom of heaven you're only a Christian if you've accepted I have not got it all together I'm weak and fragile and broken and I need the true and better Daniel who was broken for me who restored me and who releases and commissions me again today to go and bring a fresh flavor, a droplet of the kingdom of heaven into your space. Those are mental health challenges to bring words of freedom and life and release. I'm going along than I intended to, but I just feel like a little prophetic moment. I'm just trying to sense what else God is saying. I think there are some of you here are, are nodding in assent cognitively, but your heart is still a bit cold. Because it's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Been there, done that. Didn't work last time. Or 
I'm not a Daniel. I just want to speak God's heart over you afresh this morning. I just want you to encourage you even now just to close your eyes if that helps you to receive what the Holy Spirit is doing. I think God does want to speak to those of you who are very impressive. Gosh, some of you are. You've got big, responsible jobs and great degrees. I think the Holy Spirit would want to say, just, are you in the upside down kingdom of heaven? Are you prepared to be, to look foolish, to be humbled? What about if the lion's den or the furnace comes and not the, not the gifts and the honor and the recognition and the promotion? The suffering savior who was scorned and mocked, who never wrote a book or left his home or got married or had kids or lived past the age of 35. He calls you afresh into his upside down kingdom to lay your life down. And then I think there are those of us who just feel like we're on the bench, as it were, in the stands in the kingdom of heaven. There's the Daniels to get to play, and then there's us, and we watch. And eventually Jesus comes back and he'll commend all the Daniels and he'll let all of us in. It's a lie. And we'll just call it out as such. And just ask the Holy Spirit to lead you into truth. Because that's what Jesus said he would do. So he would give us the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. That you have a part to play. That you're made in the image of God to extend the kingdom of God in a way that nobody else is built to do. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit would say, do you believe that? Do you accept that? Do you receive that? Let me take you by the hand this week and let's see what I would do. We're just going to sing a song of response and closing in a moment which just really helps us to look ahead to that day when Christ returns and this kingdom that he has established is fully realized so that we leave this morning with that eternal perspective that the promise that was made to Daniel was fulfilled in Christ. We live in it now. We long to see more of it now than we do, by goodness. And one day it's coming. So this song is going to help us look ahead with an eternal perspective and I trust sending us out with faith and with courage to extend the kingdom. Let's stand.